If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Since the coronavirus lockdown became a daily feature of our lives, a number of commentators have speculated about the future of economic liberalism. Many on the left and some Muslims have concluded this period will presage the end of capitalism and the dawn of a new economic order. Such claims fail to live up to proper scrutiny. Instead, we may be witnessing the decline of America's position as the global hegemon and with it the fragmentation of the liberal world order. My guest today, Riaz Hassan, is a writer and community organiser. I discuss the political and economic ramifications of the crisis. We look at the decline of America, the move to embrace the Chinese model of capitalism, and whether a realistic and well-thought-through Islamic model currently exists to meet the demands of the 21st century. I begin by asking him about his thoughts on how Western liberal governments have dealt with the looming economic crisis. Well, I think in terms of how people have dealt with it, is also this changes in the same countries dealing with the crisis over the last few weeks. I think it's 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 quite apparent that um, people have changed their stance mm-hmm. uh, from the British government and the Americans. So even if you look at 
the American government stance on Trump, and I know his quotes are very easy to pick up on, um, but I think on the 12th of March, he suggested, and I'm quoting here, he said, the virus will not have a chance against us because we have put in place the most aggressive and comprehensive measures to confront this virus, to confront this foreign virus in modern history. So that was on the 12th of March. Right. And if you kind of compare that against what the press conference was yesterday, which was on the 31st of March, there was a complete about turn in terms of how they were looking at the same issue. Um, and although... I mean, I hear it was a, it was a pretty spectacular conference. Um, did you watch it live? Yeah, I watched the conference and, and it was quite, it was quite uh, uh, attritional and quite, uh, uh, qu- quite as if there, were, you know, there was a level of confusion. Uh, there was a level of um, kind of unknown factors involved there. There was a quite a, a lot of self-admittance as well. Um, and, and the great thing about it is, is there's no, in that press conference, there was hardly any pretense as to what was going on. Um, so it wasn't covered in kind of a political cloak of, you know, this is the, this is the situation as we want to present it. It was kind of real. Um, and the questioners from the journalists were kind of real as well. And they kind of smelt of a, a real sense of desperation, really, uh, from the way they were talking. And just, just the figures, I mean, you know, this is the first time that a projected amount of deaths. Um, I mean, range, upper end, what, what were they saying, 200,000? I think they were saying upper end of 200,000, and that's with social distancing, um, and a lower end of 100,000. So that's like, I don't know how many 9-11 deaths that equates to, but that's just phenomenal in American history. And that, that's what I think caught people off guard on that press conference. Um, and now whether they're trying to do that in terms of uh, kind of set expectations of people at the upper end so that when they come in lower, it's it's counted as a success or not, it's hard to say at this stage. But certainly there were some real, it was some real revelatory uh, facts at that press conference. I mean, can you bring us up to speed with uh, how governments across Europe and America are economically dealing with this? Yeah, so, I mean, if we take... Um, America in the first instance. So the, the the stimulus package of I think it was below two trillion. I think it was about one point five trillion or something. Now, again, as you rightly say, most of that money. I think there's indications of between sixty to sixty five percent of that money is going to the survival of corporations, rather like it was done in the end of the financial crisis, really, uh, where Obama had the stimulus package, but most of that stimulus package was uh, to uphold corporations, uh, the banking sector in particular, and the insurance sector, and the automotive industry. Um, In a similar fashion, these packages is there to uphold the basic framework of the economy, which which are the corporations. there is, uh, I mean, obviously, there is a large amount of unemployment because the unemployment figures that came out, I think, about a week ago, um, showed a sharp increase uh, in terms of the U.S. jobless figures. And a lot of these measures, although the headline is that a lot of these figures are going towards the jobless and there's a check being posted to every household in, in the United States. And so-called helicopter money. Yeah, the helicopter money, which is, I think, in the region of about $3,000 or something like that. Um, it's, it's really pittance compared to the bailout that's going to occur for hmm. the major corporations. 
Right. Um, and that's very similar and analogous to what happened after the financial crisis, because if we look at it as a sense of priorities, that's really where the priority is. Um, and the other stuff is, is a bit of window dressing, really, in terms of the stimulus package. But I, I yeah. think uh, what I, sorry, uh, what I wanted to just kind of look at is the future projection of the economy, because I, I think once we look at the, the states and also the, the, is similar to the British package that we have here as well, um, th- there are going to be various factors which are kind of going to come to the fore very, very quickly. Um, so the supply side of the economies are going to be really struggling when, you know, the factories have been closing, the shops are shut, all the service industries in terms of restaurants, airlines, holiday makers um, have all been shut down. And even for them to restart, they will be, uh, you know, there's a loss of momentum. It's not easy for businesses to just set up shop again uh, from day one. Um, and then there's a decrease in demand. So consumers, even when this present crisis is over and things do open up again and the holiday resorts do open and the airlines do open, the lack of confidence or the loss of confidence in terms of people returning to those things is just going to take a a long time to um, kind of regain, I think. Well, what are your thoughts on uh, the situation across Europe and in particular here in the UK? The Chancellor Rishi Sunak, he announced a few weeks back a 30 billion package uh, to deal with the coronavirus problem. Uh, but that uh, was uh, uh, was increased tremendously, right? So when he finally announced his package, it was to the tune of 300 billion. And I think it will probably go up when we think about the welfare burden that will be placed uh, on in the next few weeks. Uh, I mean, what's your perspective on how these governments are dealing with the crisis and whether the measures they've put into place, let alone the state intervention that they've always said is a, is a problem for, uh, for, uh, for, for capitalist governments, for capitalist econo- economies, uh, but how are these governments dealing with it? What, what's your assessment as to uh, the way forward for them? Well, I think it seems like all rules have been thrown out the window. Um, so it seems that on the, on, the, on the face of it, that, you know, the Chancellor's very famous comment about we'll do whatever it takes, which was incidentally borrowed from uh, Mario Draghi of the ECB at the time of the, uh, at the, time of the um, South European financial crisis. Um, but this... He also said, you know, that there is no ideology now. Yeah, exactly. Which means, what does that mean? The you know Boris Johnson's government has become a socialist government. You know what? What does that actually mean? Um, but it's it's almost as if whatever it takes means just borrowing more, and that's why they reduce the interest rates, obviously, to point one percent. So that, in effect, is um, it, it's it's a delaying factor for the economy. Some of it, it's real money, and some of it is not real money. So the stimulus of about 30 billion, I think, which you described in various ways for furloughed employees and for self-employment, some of that is real money, uh, but a lot of it is loan money, which is repayable and deferred payments after after the event, after three or four months, four, four or five months. So even rental payments, if you can't pay, you, they're still owed, but they have to be paid later. So a lot of these factors are... Um, have been dressed up in, in many ways. But you're right, the, the economy uh, for that amount of borrowing does mean that rather like, again, 
the analogy with the financial crisis is that we will have a period of sustained repayment of that of that debt um, by both households in the country and by the government so then we're in for a period of stagnation again uh, for a number of years now now do you think that there are broader conclusions we can draw at this stage um i'm thinking of um the uh, i mean a lot a lot of people on the left have now surmised that capitalism as a economic system is is on the brink of collapse and um uh you know the oft repeated uh, saying of francis fukuyama that liberal democracies and uh and uh, capitalism liberal economics uh would be the inevitable uh system for for mankind forever right you know we had reached the end status of human history and and human development and there was only now one ideology that really was able was uh, uh, able to uh, to provide for for human beings and and you know i'm i'm following um and reading uh, articles from from the left yeah. and the american left in particular are talking about the demise mm-hmm. of capitalism and you know paul mason here and many on yeah. the left here are are talking about a post coronavirus world order or coronavirus economic system yeah. i mean what what do you, what do you make of of such claims well, i i think if you i think where they generate from is um is again from the if you look at the economic outlook um a lot of commentators have kind of said that the prescriptive orthodoxy of of macroeconomics um as we previously understood it doesn't really hold true anymore so what they're talking about is things like levers of interest rates or pricing mechanisms and movements to generate demand actually don't hold true in a in a world where there's a loss of confidence and a loss of um you know uh, in terms of the way we used to live and the way we will live in terms of what people see as the role of capitalism and how that would work now capitalism is a funny thing because people made similar comments at the end of the financial crisis as well yeah um yeah. and there was a and if you remember the occupy movement that kind of arose after the financial crisis where wall street was um, occupied and st paul's cathedral i think here as well um a lot of these movements along along with things like the arab spring that happened in the aftermath of that um and then maybe the environmental lobby that's occurred recently a lot of these things have been well meaning and have always been kind of harbingers of change uh and people have kind of bought into that idea or the idea of hope but what's actually transpired is that they've mostly evaporated away um and capitalism someone actually said and i can't remember whether it was adam curtis or or once some people of that ilk have actually said that capitalism is not actually evil in its essence it's amoral which means that it kind of subsumes or absorbs these movements into its part it kind of you know looks at them and looks at the public mood for change and kind of absorbs it and just kind of repackages it up and and you can kind of see that with things like the environmental lobby about sustainability and and uh, you know the green movement and how that's kind of transpired into products on our supermarket shelves so i think it has a the demise of capitalism is is something that you know needs a, a bit more thought and understanding and i think i've put 
commentators into two camps, the optimistic camp, who are people like Paul Mason and people on the left who want to see that things have changed and that this is a precipitous moment and things will inevitably change. And then those on the pessimistic level who who probably understand that capitalism has this kind of uh, age-old method of absorbing changes like this and absorbing the public mood into its path. Um, and, and that's where the two camps set, sit. And in addition to that, I think there's also been commentary and there's been analysis on the fact that um, indicators of economics, things like GDP um, or things like growth statistics, have actually now th there's an intellectual movement or a kind of a, um, uh, a grassroots movement in order to change those indicators of success, if you like, to uh, economics should be based upon, you know, um, sifting through and upholding social cohesion or economics should be uh, about health economics. And then you would suddenly need, you know, health visas to move from one place to the other, or there'll be a restriction on capital flow. So th there's a number of factors that come in. And I think allied to that, the, the one last factor that I want to discuss is this issue about industry in general, because a lot of the problems that um, the Western countries, especially the European Union and, and the United States have faced, has been because of a, a decentralization or a, 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 a deindustrialization de 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 or a distribution of labor. Yeah. So, so when you look at Adam Smith yeah. and the Wealth of Nations, it's about, you know, the um, the, the distribution of labor between specialized tasks. And that's taken to a completely different level in the globalization world, where it's almost like a distribution of specialization to countries like Korea and China and India and so forth. Um, and that's actually led to this thing, what they refer to in industry as, you know, inventory, um, um, mm. In its essence, being evil, as Tim Cook of Apple has stated, and what that means is that they do things like just-in-time production, where things are just yeah. shipped over yeah. in time, and now the nothing is warehoused anymore. Yeah, exactly, and and warehousing sees as seen as a expense that can be done without, and we have new technology and modern systems that go to the nth degree of minimizing this warehouse into very intricate terms well let's come back to globalization because i think that's a really yeah. interesting idea you've raised there and i do want to explore that further because uh i mean even francis Fukuyama was on radio the other day talking about uh the trend towards deglobalization uh but but i mean maybe francis Fukuyama is a good a good segue into into the following uh and that is that uh, isn't i mean i i totally i totally agree with you i think that um I would go even further to say that you know uh, these uh, these uh, predictions that capitalism is is about to fall are uh, wildly over exaggerated because capitalism is a very very resilient but also it's very unspecific right you know uh, after the second world war uh, capitalism went through a uh, a, a a transformation and adopted some of the social democratic values which which incorporated uh limited nationalization and and a broader welfare state at least across Europe and so you know it it, it is able to as you quite rightly said it's able to uh to consume or it's able to subsume uh the uh, the trends and that are out there and, and and able to accommodate them but remain 
uh, fairly robust. And, and I think after the 2008 yeah. crisis, I and mean, I remember reading books about the fall of capitalism, uh, none of that came true. I mean, it, it seemed to me that capitalism bounced back. And, and you know, I, 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 you know I, I hate to say this, but I think it's based on a very superficial analysis. It's a hope rather than a, uh, you know, a reality. reality but... Yeah. I would say that mm. there is a there is something additional which this crisis has unfurled, and and that is that uh, liberal democracies have been pretty poor at dealing with this problem. Now, partly it's because of uh, its reliance on the East for a lot of key supplies like face masks and and uh, chemicals and and the rest of it, but also partly because. Um, its decentralized structures, its reliance on individualism, uh, its inertia when it comes to dealing with things in a in a slightly more authoritarian way, uh, all of that has come to to harm it. Right? I mean, just think about closer to home, Boris Johnson's government for the last month. It's been differing, and um, even a simple task of of uh, calling a lockdown here in the UK, took the government two or three weeks to enact because they initially relied. I mean, Boris Johnson said it, you know, we live in a liberal society and we don't need to force people to stay in their homes. We need to advise people. And there was a lot of reliance on this nudge unit, you know, it's behavioral science. You're able to get people to change their behaviors by incrementally uh, telling them what's good for them. And, and, and they would rationally respond to that all of that failed right i mean uh it, it was only when boris johnson finally went on tv and uh and was able to express in 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 no uncertain terms that this crisis is, is actually a real crisis and if you don't stay in your home uh yeah. it's going to cause a, a a more severe crisis that people uh partially at least took note i mean i say partially because it's still not the case that um this lockdown is holding and there are pockets around the, around the country where uh, people are um, yeah. uh, can't see it right and, and they can't they don't believe in it and, and so they're, they're sort of it's business yeah. as usual yeah and I think and I think the the, the Trump con conference yesterday was akin to that Boris Johnson moment really? is where he right. suddenly I think there was a sudden realization that you know this is not going to be over by Easter it dawned on him, it, did it? <laughs> I think it did dawn on him and all of his advisors and all of the journalists that were present. It was it was quite a telling press conference yesterday. But I mean, coming back to your point about, um, firstly, I, the I think... The failure of liberal democracy. Yeah, the failure of yeah. liberal democracy. I think, in essence, it's it's like the values have worked against it in this crisis. So, right. so freedoms, which you brought up rightly in terms of how you know, we can do things by nudging people along. And incidentally, I think I read a report today that in Sweden, they're still trying to do that. So there is no prescriptive law about social distancing in Sweden at the oh, moment. Oh, it's shocking, right? Yeah, and they're yeah. still trying to maintain a level of, uh, you know, that people will uh, have the right behavioral context in terms of what they're doing, um, which is interesting to say the least. Um, and how they pan out is, it would be interesting to watch. Um, but but I think one of the other things that kind of conspires against, especially a country like America, um, and if you look at the EU bloc in totality, is, is this issue of federalism. Um, and if you compare that with kind of state capitalism in China, um, it, it's a complete difference. So you have Andrew Cuomo of New York who said yesterday that uh, 
you know, we're almost competing for ventilators. It's like being on eBay with other states. Um, and, you know, the highest bidder gets the ventilator. And that was brought up in the press conference yesterday for which, you know, there was kind of a very muted response. Um, and it's it's not just that. It's, you know, what we see in terms of hoarding in our supermarkets in Sainsbury's or in Tesco's or whatever is kind of played out on a macro level in the European Union as well, where Germany doesn't want to release its respirators to Italy, um, neither to Spain or to anybody. In fact, you had you know, the European Union, the dream of the European Union as this one kind of solidifying force where each one's interest is equal to all, um, just kind of suddenly been laid bare. And um, Well, well it's, it was the liberal dream, right? This was the, yeah. the utopia. This is what uh, was the end of history, that countries give up on national sovereignty yeah. um, and uh, work together for the, the benefit of uh, the collective. And, and that seems to be falling apart, uh, apart all across Europe at the moment. Yeah, and it's suddenly been just unpacked with, with you know, one virus. And, and predominantly because it's an existential threat is, is the way people see it. So, um, you know, they could argue or people could argue on their point of views that, well, it's, a, it's such a life and death matter that we have to do that. But then again, the values that they espouse and the values that they abide by um, were there for all time, right? They were they were there that everybody had to buy into, um, and suddenly you see the president of Serbia calling out to China and exposing all the European myths about you know, uh, even Serbia, which was seeking European uh, membership, is saying that you know this is just laid bare our kind of concerns about France and Germany and everybody else really in terms of um, handling the situation. But so, uh, so th- there is a there is a crisis and. There is a, uh, uh, you know, there are competing models uh, that are that are um, uh, that are being presented here. You've got the Chinese model, which is a very uh, state-heavy, centralized model, which works efficiently to to deal with the crisis. Of course, the Chinese have lied about, probably have misinformed the public about the number of deaths, and I would imagine that the Chinese uh, knew about the virus. Uh, uh, at least as far back as November, but only really released information in January. Um, so, you know, of course, with all of those caveats, uh, China has dealt with it in a far more efficient way because it was able to galvanize uh, the the resources of the state and it worked in one direction. I mean, something like 40,000 doctors from across China were sent to Wuhan alone. Um, you know, in, in Britain, they can't even deliver PPE masks to uh, to a hospital, right? And they've been saying, I mean, I remember as far back as three weeks uh, back where there was a select committee, a health select committee hearing. And uh, the um, uh, Simon Stevens from the uh, head of the NHS was suggesting that within 48 hours, the distribution, it will be resolved. And yet we sit here today and uh, uh, doctors are complaining that they don't have vital equipment. Yeah. I mean, was, think was, about the American. Jenny, it was Jenny Harries who kind of admitted to that as well in the press conference, I think, two days ago, that uh, yeah, they got right. their logistics I mean, wrong. I mean, the, the American example is, as you said, you know, it's partly their structure, the federal system. But also there is disarray, right? You know, um, uh, there is there is a, a sense that there is a lack of efficiency. I mean, this is, this is uh, liberal democracies are failing to deal with with a, a cri- an unprecedented crisis, whereas authoritarian 
governments, or at least governments that seem to dis- you know, that that have more centralized societies. I mean, I would include South Korea as part of this. Uh, ha- have been far more proactive in in dealing with the conflict. And I suppose my question to you, or my my discussion point, really is: um, Is this really a game changer when it comes to uh, the future of liberal democracy? Well, I, I think. The, the way to look at this, um, I, in my opinion anyway, is state capitalism has kind of dealt with this crisis um, obviously better than the way liberal democracies have. Now, th- there's two questions here. Is it by design or is it by providence that that has happened? So when the crisis first started, the the, the notion was that, you know, this was China's Chernobyl, right? It was... Um, it was a question of this is going to destroy the growth of China. Um, they haven't got a handle on this crisis. They're lying about the numbers. Um, you know, we, we can't, you know, we can't trust this. And it was almost people peering in from the outside on, you know, inside their windows and saying what a mess that they're made of things. And this was, this was not that long ago. This was only in December and January. And that complete transformation from then to now has just been remarkable. It's just been, China has now been trying to export its soft power. Um, it's trying to play on the fractious nature of the alliances in the Western democracies by, you know, aiding Italy. I think there was a thousand ventilators, a hundred thousand respirators being sent to Italy just by itself. Um, and then also the interdependence on on places like China, where you have, I think, what somebody said, ninety five percent of the ingredients of painkillers and antibiotics are made in China. So, yes, it's an over reliance on that kind of um, supply route there. Um, but state I mean, capitalism, but, yeah. So, I, I mean, that's a. I would like to unpack that a little further because it seems to me that what we may be seeing isn't, you know, the um, the demise of capitalism. I think that's an over exaggeration, but rather a a rework a a choice between two models, authoritarian capitalism or state capitalism, as the Russians call it, or liberal democracy and capitalism, which is which is proved to be uh, an inadequate system or, or an inadequate mm. combination when dealing with uh, crises like global pandemics. And and I think I think and I feel that there I can see I can feel that there is a substantial uh, body of opinion which now believes that more of China is not a bad thing. I mean, just think about countries across the East who are measuring up the American mess and the Chinese efficiency. And and I've probably concluded that it's probably better to have a government like China. I mean, even closer to home, you know, a few days ago, Viktor Orban announced state emergency powers. But in effect, it gives him uh, unlimited powers. He has now become the Führer of Hungary. Yeah. Uh, he he can now uh, rule by decree. I mean, he had a seventy percent um, lead in in the um, uh, in the composition of parliament in in Hungary. Anyway, so he mm. could have passed whatever he wanted. But mm. why even continue with that facade? It seems you know he's he's his approach now is to uh, is to um, uh, rule by decree and and to uh, to to unmask his his authoritarian credentials, and I, and I think that's been a long time coming because it hasn't. I mean, Orban once declared that he would rather uh, turn Hungary into a 
illiberal, illiberal democracy, democracy rather than right. a liberal democracy, right? Yeah, that's right. And, and I think it goes even further. So if, even if you look at uh, the standard bearers of Western liberal democracy, France, England, or Britain, or the United States, you, you could even argue that populism uh, in its very essence is a is kind of, you know, bumping against this idea of state capitalism or is kind of, you know, implementing policies which you wouldn't see in a normal uh, liberal democracy. So even the likes of Trump's and his policy and his disregard for institutions or even in France, what we see now is people going around with pieces of paper trying to justify, you know, going outside or the measures that are in place in Britain and all over Western democracies. You could even argue that these are measures for this time, yes, but, you know, how long will they last? People are afraid that, you know, the the actual freedoms that they were used to are being trampled upon. And you could even argue that there is a tendency within populism to to drive towards that kind of ideal model of state capitalism. But my my question to you uh, in return is this, is does state capitalism offer people something that they don't get within um, the traditional model of liberal democracies in terms of does it still give people the freedoms that they're used to? And do people value those freedoms enough? Um, so at a time like this, yes, it's attractive. And yes, we can see because people ultimately value life and security above all else. So they can see the benefits of a China model in terms of restricting it to Wuhan, as opposed to something like the States, where everything seems out of control at the moment. And, you know, Midwest is is doing its own things. California is doing its own thing and and whatever. But people's memories are also short as well. So does this model, because we're in the situation that we're in, offer that hope to people because it appeals to their sense of security and um, uh, their instincts of survival? But when the crisis is over, will people still uphold those kind of values? Will they still... um, agree in terms of their social contract with the state to this trampling upon their um, very essence or the freedoms that they were used to because that that's an interesting precept for for the future i'm not sure how that will kind of turn out well i mean i think that that is really interesting i mean for the last uh two three hundred years I, I suppose the um uh you know the intellectual opinion was moving in the direction uh that suggested that people want freedom uh you know if we go back to the uh lockean ideal the john locke ideal of a social contract that your government's responsibility is to secure your rights and without if your government uh doesn't uh, secure your rights in your freedoms your your liberties then that government is an illegitimate government uh i suspect that 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 concept is at least at at least now being contested around the world. Uh, I mean, just think about the China model, and I really think there is a China model. Um, I mean, I I I you know I, I have surmised that um, uh, sometimes analysts overplay the value of comprehensive ideologies. Um, and I've I've spoken to a lot of Muslims. If we went to you know uh, think about it more closer to home, who, who suggest that. Um, you know, only comprehensive systems can really succeed, and and a comprehensive system would be something like liberalism or, 
or communism or Islam, and you know, in in our context, right? These are systems of belief which encompass uh, a number of areas, and I, I don't quite buy that. I mean, I think that a model is only is only as good as whether people follow it, and and China has promoted a model. It is a, a a state capitalism, so it's it's capitalism without the liberal democracy, and 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 China has very uh, very effectively done uh, achieved a, a degree of economic prosperity uh, without having to release the reins of political power. I mean, thirty years ago, uh, China's the total growth rate of China was equivalent. Uh, the total economy of China GDP was equal was equivalent to the Netherlands, right? Yeah. And uh, today, uh, it's it's uh, just its GDP growth is equivalent to to the Netherlands. Mm. And so, you know, China has grown uh, rapidly over the last thirty years. But do you, and as do long you, as it, yeah. So I was going to say, do do you think because I, I, I'm I'm quite of the opinion that it depends on what China wants to do because. Um, I think that's an important question because it, it's really understanding what it has in its mind in terms of where it wants to be in the world. Because traditionally, when we thought of China, and I wrote something about this um, ten or fifteen years ago, where China was seen in its infancy, as it was during the growth stage of, with Deng Xiaoping, who was introducing state capitalism um, in its various forms. The, the role of China or the objective of China at that stage was to promote uh, uh, this form of capitalism within its borders and with the rest of the world. But in terms of its geographical impact or its global impact, was it saw as its end objective was to control the South China Sea. And it saw America or the United States as a competitor to that in terms of its degree of influence of the nations around it, be the Philippines or Vietnam or, or South Korea or Japan. And that's what its end objective was. Now, in terms of whether that's changed, whether with things like the Belt and Road Initiative or the Chinese debt trap that African countries and Sri Lanka and stuff have been kind of fallen prey to recently, whether that's become more global in its uh, outlook or whether it wants to kind of um, attain that level of significance is, is I think, an, an issue which kind of will pan out with time. But uh, I think also the, the issue about, you know, we, we see America as a declining power, and I don't think there's any kind of, um, you know, much debate about that. Even the State Department, I think, kind of recognizes that there's people in the State Department who say, that the demise of America is not really uh, a question of debate. It's really about trying to manage that demise in, in the face of uh, uh, rising powers like, like China and uh, to a certain extent other powers. But it, it's, it's a question of where does China want equivalence? Does it want to overtake the states? Because every society, I mean, the, the American society and, and liberal democracies, they have a self-preservation kind of switch within them which is about you know being the dominant culture being having the dominant values in the world um so my kind of rhetorical question back to you is is what does china want to see from the world in terms of that well, aspect well i mean i mean china's um intentions are somewhat opaque and and it's it's hard to pin down what its intentions are although uh, i think uh, analysts who follow the speeches of, of the philosophy of Xi Jinping 
uh, would conclude that he's been far more assertive, especially, I mean, China since the financial crisis has been far more willing to uh, to call out uh, for structural problems in 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 Western societies and its heavy reliance on debt and its you know and, and uh, certainly over the pandemic. I mean, the pandemic is a, is an interesting example of how China is asserting uh, its influence across the world. Um, China uh, has used its Belt and Road Initiative, and remember, this is a network of infrastructure and trade projects all across. Principally, the eastern, uh, the the, the, um, uh, the eastern old region, and, yeah. exactly. But 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 even further afield, right? China has used the used that influence. I mean, there are at the moment eight countries in uh, in its uh, in its immediate region who depend on China. I mean, Pakistan, uh, its uh, overall GDP, its its uh, yearly uh, growth of over forty five percent. Of, of that intake uh, of that income comes from um, some sort of trade it has with China and and that is likely to grow I mean, and that's not just uh, immediate countries a large number of African countries are stronger trading partners today uh, with China than they are with uh, the European Union or America China is buying its buying influence through a number of means by using its economic might but also by debt diplomacy um it's it, uh, uh, a num- as america is uh is hunkering down and trying to deal with this um looming crisis it's america is failing to lead the world in in resolving the problem because it's it's sinking in its own problems at the moment the european union is is uh, deeply divided uh, over I, I think with this the, crisis i think with america yeah. it's also the fact that it's trying to it it doesn't have the it, it seems as if it doesn't have the desire to yeah. to to um, kind of you know lend its weight around the world anymore. It kind of wants to do things by remote control. So e- even if you look at previous crises and uh, it's you know the previous tensions that there were there between the United States and China, whether that was trade tariffs or whether that was a Belt and Road Initiative or whether that was um, any other other contentions like North Korea or Japan or anything. Um, the United States was simply calling out China, um, but it wasn't really doing anything to to stop its kind of reemergence, or was it, maybe it was incapable of doing anything to do that. Um, but a, a, again, the even the um, just going back to the examples that you mentioned about China's sphere of influence and what this crisis has brought is brought a kind of a quickening of that process, really, uh, not just within its immediate vicinity, but also in countries like Italy, who were who were even before the crisis uh, kind of heavily... They were in, champions, right? They the, were champions I mean, it's of the, the Chinese G7 model. It's the first G7 yeah. country yeah. that joined the, uh, uh, the Belt and Road Initiative. Exactly, exactly. And then you have countries like the, some of the Eastern European, former Eastern European mm-hmm. bloc, like Hungary, uh, yeah. Hungary and Serbia and so forth. Yeah, so there's yeah. definite influences there. But uh, again, it's, it's still, uh, in my opinion, it's still too early to tell whether the ambitions kind of pan out in that way, because uh, ambitions can be twofold, right? They can be economic in terms of creating that that debt trap for these countries and having that yeah. um, exorbitant yeah. amount of economic influence. Um, but then in terms of values or in terms of what people want to uphold uh, and the kind of things that people aspire to, has that really changed in those countries? Has it really changed in Italy about, you know, what people want? 
and how and where and how they look to those kind of championing of those values um at the well, moment i mean i, I mean in, it, interestingly um the uh, the former leader he recently resigned of the five star movement which is a coalition partner um he he openly suggested this past week that uh, China has helped Italy more than the European Union has ever helped Italy over this crisis. Um, I mean, China have sent in doctors and and equipment, ventilators and face masks, and and um, uh, and and uh, helped Italy to to deal with this sort of formulating strategies in relation to to the crisis. Um, so, I mean, it, it, I, I mean, I, I, I agree with you. I think it's it's premature to say that China will sometime soon replace the influence of the European Union or America in, in, in a number of these countries. But certainly, I think it's buying influence, at least amongst the political uh, elites or political parties in these countries. I mean, the Serbian president, uh, he said uh, a couple of days, well, last week, in fact, um, he he. He openly said that, uh, I mean, remember, Serbia is is one of the candidate countries for membership of the European Union. It's part of the European Union's neighbourhood scheme. And uh, he openly said that um, China was more of a reliable partner than the European Union. And so so what we have here is, you know, we we have got China very very overtly trying to use its soft power its its uh, influence in these countries. I mean, it's it's akin to the Marshall Plan, yeah. right? You know, which America rolled out after the Second World War, uh, where America was able to, in a, in, in in essence, buy influence in in a, a number of European countries by uh, by uh, debt and by uh, handouts, by grants, and then by, re-raising by the infrastructure of those uh, countries. Yeah, yeah, and. Well, exactly, and 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 I I think China is trying to do that now. In in direct answer to your question, what is China's real motive? What well, what it what it seems to me that China is seeing this as an opportunity to uh, to uh, influence uh, a number of countries, but I think China's critical sphere is the Asia Pacific, and and what China wants to do there is it, it has a twofold objective. It wants to kick. America out of these countries and kick its influence out of these countries and and reduce America's political and in future military influence because remember um America has stationed uh, a large number of its uh military personnel all across uh the region but also China wishes uh f- to um uh, to uh, replace that vacuum that uh of the absence of America uh, with uh, Chinese influence and with a uh, with a belief, with, it, it wants to spread the belief in uh, state capitalism and a belief in the Chinese model. Uh, I mean, you know, Imran Khan, something I know you're familiar with, you know, um, Prime Minister of Pakistan. Um, I mean, he talks about the Medina model, and maybe we should talk about the Islamic side of this in in a bit. But he talks about the Medina model, but but. Uh, if you read his speeches, he talks about the China model more yeah, I think than the Medina, the Medina model. model. Is, a, is a camouflage uh, for the Chinese for the state capitalism, really. Right. Yeah. But right. I, I think, but I think, uh, I think you. Yeah. I think obviously time will tell is how this pans out. But I think one hmm. factor that we shouldn't underestimate either is the is the U.S. role in this because. Even if you look after the financial crisis, the the U.S. economy was surprisingly 
um, stable or it, it was actually growing uh, to to a certain extent. And even after Trump, I mean, whether that was Trump by design or by or by luck, uh, it was still growing and it was it was doing rather well compared to the European Union and to anything else. Um, and that was his projection. And then the U.S. military might, as you rightly pointed out, in the South China Sea is still still a formidable force. And even though China's military has expanded and its influence has expanded, it's still no match for for U.S. concerns in that area. And uh, and that you know can as to how that kind of pans out, and you know whether soft power has a view on that, it's still a formidable opponent for china to look at and it's something that china can't ignore completely it has to take it into its calculations for whatever it wants to do whether it's on the global stage or even on a regional stage within the south china sea um, and i think that's kind of you know it's a multifaceted approach that it needs to kind of take care of really i mean future prospects sorry i mean i think it would be a fool uh, who who tries to predict the future here right uh but um uh, you know, but I'm going to try to predict the future. But, but I I feel that um, you know certainly capitalism isn't going to fall as a result of this crisis. I mean, capitalism is is going to be transformed, and I think a number of countries in the East, in particular, but also as we said across Europe, uh, are now looking to the China model as a more viable model of of capitalism than the liberal democratic model. But what is interesting is, uh, you, you know, I want to pick up on a point you mentioned earlier, and that's deglobalization. Um, you know, for 30 years now, we've been reliant on, on these uh, global supply chains and, and countries, you know, have followed the Ricardo model of specialization where, you know, you do what you're good at and uh, you can rely on your neighbors and your and your global partners to provide uh, the gaps in your economy to to service the gaps in your economy, right? And and that model has been severely tested uh, in in recent days and weeks. And I think it it is fair it is correct to say that. Um, I mean, it's not just because of this pandemic. Um, just just consider the trade wars that uh, Trump has uh, has yeah the tariffs against, and, uh, and, and you know China and, and so yeah. so I think in terms of trade and I think you're right because one of the most primary things that was kind of painted out by economists and uh, commentators at really the start of this crisis was the issue of slack and the issue of redundancy in the economy. And they suddenly found that there was no redundancy in the economy. There was no storage. There was no inventory of anything. Um, in fact, uh, I think uh, I think you pointed out to me previously that um, at the beginning of the crisis, China bought all the masks from the states. Um, and then during the crisis, China used them up or had them in store. And now the state and the companies that supply those masks are short of those masks. So it's a case of a cyclical kind of transfer of uh, of just-in-time goods, really. Um, but I think one of the things that they've kind of quickly realized is that redundancy and this kind of, um, uh, this kind of uh, race towards maximum efficiency with, with you know, uh, maximum uh, kind of uh, uh, minimization of waste uh, has actually been uh, a major, major drawback in terms of the way they've dealt with this crisis. Um, so now I think what 
the, the models that have been proposed is things like what they're talking about is reshoring. So which reshoring is what the old Trump model, which means bring the jobs back to America. Yeah, like bring Apple, Apple back, back and, and, you know, we don't have yeah. to use Foxconn yeah. in, the, in the China, in mainland China. We can build things here. We can build yeah. our, our cars yeah. back here and, and so forth. But people have kind of identified that that's not a short-term fix. That's not something can, that can be just regenerated in an instant. Um, and what people are talking about is this issue of redundancy where the supply chain exists in its present form but there's redundancy built into the present supply chain. So you still have Foxconn and you still have the Chinese factories building the products, but you just order more of them and you keep inventories, which is what they didn't do in the past. So that's the kind of a partial solution to the problem is um, what they're talking about, these two models of, you know, before reshoring occurs, or even if they need reshoring is to use this model of redundancy where they, um, simply order more stock and then keep it for crises is like this in the future. Um, and, and that's a model that's been painted out uh, in discussions. But th- I think one thing is for sure is that the world isn't going to be the same before this and the economy isn't going to be the same. And as I kind of pointed out earlier, uh, you know, macroeconomic models just simply don't hold true um, after this crisis. And whether whether we follow the optimistic model of some of the commentators where they think there's going to be a major shift in how we measure success and whether blunt instruments like GDP and unemployment are going to be the main factors on how we look at things or whether economics is going to be a more widely encompassing field where they look at um, issues like, you know, social cohesion or happiness or, you know, health economics, um, and whether there's going to be, you know, free movement of capital flows, that's another interesting thing, because at the moment, uh, that still seems to exist, right? You know, currency trading still seems to happen. And there's been, you know, major shocks and uh, economic um, kind of shock waves occurring in various industries over the last few weeks. You know, every day, every two days, there's another industry in trouble. I think today, there were sharp falls in the banking industry in terms of the stock prices. So, how that continues is going to be interesting to note. But I, I think that because capitalism in its essence, and especially the economic model of capitalism is a self-preservation model, um, that's something that they will uphold before even you know, looking at adverse effects on human life, because that's essentially what the stimulus packages, packages were designed for. We we uh, I mean it's been a fascinating discussion and and really I would I think we can there's a lot there to to unpack further and and maybe we should uh, you know we should do that in 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 future conversations that, that we have uh, but um, you know you and I we we um, we aspire to some form of Islamic model and we believe that um, Islam has a uh, has a has a has a view on these sorts of matters right and. And you know, Muslims for for centuries were uh, were contenders uh, of uh, the number one uh, position in the world, and and they uh, designed a system which brought prosperity, but ha- and happiness to to human beings. And I think that's you know, no matter how you you evaluate Islamic history, when you take the broad sweep of Islamic history, you, you know, you see a a state that brought happiness and wealth to to large numbers of people, Muslims and non-Muslims. 
Now, you know, that the absence of the Islamic system, but also Islamic thinking about, I mean, I don't want to be hypercritical here, but, 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 you know, uh, and, and, and maybe it's worth, uh, it's worth, um, I mean, we, we were speaking previously about uh, a really great article by Overmir Anjum in, in, uh, on the Yakin Institute uh, website. It's a great who you had on your show previously? That's right, and and um, yeah. uh, and he um, he spoke about the absence of uh, of uh, innovative Islamic thinking when it comes to providing an alternative uh, to you know to these dilapidated systems that we see you know east and west because we're no subscribers of the uh, state capitalism model. Neither do we accept the liberal democratic model, which is proposed by by liberals here in the West. But, but I, I mean, I, I suppose my, my question to you is that, you know, there is an absence of, of, of deep thinking about presenting uh, an Islamic alternative. I mean, if I, if I was to be critical, actually, I would say that most people who now endorse, an, and it's not most, but some people who endorse an Islamic perspective tend to be quite empty of ideas and, and tend, to, tend to be more aspirational than than rooted in in reality and depth yeah rather like the optimists of the of the left after this crisis well yeah. well i mean it's another great analogy in yeah. fact i mean could we not argue that you know i i hate using this term islamist and it's a shorthand and i hate it and i think it's a inappropriate term but islamists if we were to use that term are, are you know are analogous in in a sense to uh to the western left because they're talking about um, solutions which are, which which now don't accommodate this new world that we're we're living in. And, and so, yeah. so, I mean, I, mean, I, I think um, I, I've got kind of two ways of looking at this. I think, firstly, right. um, I, I think we have to recognise that um, there is an openness for change. So, whatever this crisis has done. Um, it's it's kind of precipitated that openness of change. So where the discussions about uh, alternative ways of thinking is away from left and right were kind of on the intellectual stage or between certain kind of, you know, uh, uh, far out actors really, or, or people just thinking blue sky thinking. And it's kind of brought that thinking to the forefront. So those radical ideas, which people seemed impossible uh, just a few weeks ago, or quixotic in, in in their very essence have just now become realizable and reality. So, um, you know, you know, they say things are abstract until they become reality. And, and that's exactly what, what's happened here is things like mortgage holidays, things like, you know, uh, handing out money and checks in the post to people, things that, you know, people were aspiring to on the intellectual left before things like a universal basic income. Um, so all of those things have suddenly come up to, are staring at people in the face now as viable options for 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 life in the future and for societies to operate on so i i think all of that has kind of helped the thinking for for change and when it comes to islam i think what what we've got a notion and what we've got a responsibility to do is to throw the hat of islam in the ring with these ideas because we can you know unless you challenge new notions and ways of doing things unless you present islam as a viable alternative it doesn't really 
get the press that it deserves, really. Um, and if you just think about it in terms of notions, and I think what's often missing, and I take some of your points about um, how people think and how people have looked at uh, um, Islam and the way Islamic thoughts have been presented. I think what it, in my opinion, what the the term that's lacking is is a credible alternative. And the word credibility right. is really important because credibility means that when you present a notion, it's immediately um, accessible to you. Yeah, entertained right, and yeah. accessible to yeah. users in terms of yeah. how they can kind of relate it. So if you're thinking... Um, as an idea and if you want to present it you have to make it credible and making it credible means that you have to measure it up to things like the coronavirus crisis that we have here and we have to address it in detail as to how islam would have responded to this and how islam the, some of the detailed steps that it would have taken both from our past uh, in terms of when we face these crises and how we would have handled the modern situations because sometimes there's a lot of commentary about how Islam faced up to these crises like the plague and how Umar bin al-Khattab faced up to these crises in the past. And then the translation from there into how this happens into this crisis, that's what the, is slightly missing. Uh, and that's almost kind of glazed over or presented in very uh, kind of superficial terms. And that's where we need to get more of the detail from and present that as a viable alternative. But, you know, I, I, I mean, maybe just to echo your point, it, you know, Islamic thinkers are um, often doing a disservice to Islam because, um, you know, as you said, Islam should be promoted or presented as a as as a realistic, viable option. Um, and I'm, I'm minded to, I, I remember... Uh, Claude Monet, who was the one of the founders of the European Union, um, he talked about the value of ideas. And I mean, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, I'm probably paraphrasing very badly, to be honest. But ideas uh, are developed, and the time for for that developed idea uh, comes about almost as if, like, you know, it, the time um, is a bus that's coming along, and and if the idea is ripe and ready, uh, then someone's going to pick up that idea, right? And he was saying that in the context of the European Union, when he spoke of the European Union and the yeah. notion of a of a body of of um, of discrete countries that can come together and pull economic and political sovereignty, people thought he was he was crazy. Now, at least for until very recently, at least it was seen to be the most viable model for for the future of of regionalism. Um, and and so I suppose I'm I, you know. To get to the point I'm making in a very sort of long-winded way, I, I think that there needs to be the development of ideas, and that's really what I liked about over over Mira Anjum's uh, article and and that podcast that we the conversation that you referred to earlier. Um, you know, he he's his point was um, we mm. need to start you know showing some creative thinking. We need to we need to address these problems and and the coronavirus yeah. problem is is one such problem right yeah and and i think alongside that what he i think what he kind of rightfully did as well um from what i remember correctly is uh there wasn't a sense of it wasn't prescriptive so he wasn't being from what i read of his article he was saying that look we need Islamic thinking. We need to understand the role of Islam in society. We need to understand how it would kind of manifest itself on the modern stage. Um, but he wasn't prescriptive in terms of this is a step 
A, B, and C that you should take. I think what he was trying to get at was um, there needs to be a level of thinking and a formulation of these ideas, and they need to develop over time. Um, and obviously, with the right models, we can't just pinch everything out of the air because we're confined to what Islam uh, suggests and doesn't suggest. But even within that realm, there's a lot of imagination and a lot of creativity that can be applied to modern situations, especially the coronavirus situation is is, a, is an immense example of that as to how not just, you know, we should keep a distance and we shouldn't go into a plague area and we shouldn't come out of it. I mean, that's a very basic precept that we can take but in addition to that we we need to understand also from islam how should we run our economy in this kind of uh, this kind of situation how would we have you know an understanding of how society would function um how you know what kind of values we we would espouse to how would we have relations with the rest of the world so all of these uh, aspects from a modern crisis like this need to be measured up with islam is it's, and I often think you're right. It's it's a bit of a disservice in that we just talk about the immediate issue, but we don't talk about the wider context of how Islam would approach this problem. Um, and I think that's very necessary. And it, it and I think also being pres- too prescriptive too early um, is is often limits people's growth in their mindset as well. So I think that's something that needs to be looked at. It, it doesn't kind of let the kind of rivers of imagination flow within people in terms of how and why they can do the certain things. Certainly. Well, look, you know, Riaz, it's really been an, an interesting conversation. And um, uh, I think these next few weeks are going to be quite a, uh, well, testing few weeks when it comes to this crisis and, um, um, you know, the projections of, of deaths. Um, you know, subhanAllah, in, in Britain yesterday, a, a 13-year-old, uh, boy passed away in in London, right? You know, um, this is um, uh, and 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 three or four of the doc- four of the doctors that uh, that have passed away in Britain are Muslim doctors, and you know, uh, Subhanallah, you 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 look at these crises and you you realize that uh, the world needs uh, better thinking and better leaders. I mean, you know, can we cite uh, a leader today? Really, I mean, we we can probably mention a, a you know a very f- very few have really planned for this crisis and handled it in a in an appropriate way um and there is a vacuum of leadership in the world and and uh, as you quite mm. rightly said there needs to be some thinking about how muslims and how islam can um can serve uh, humanity like like we served humanity for centuries yeah, and, I, and i think also just to, in finality i think the the issue of um, you know ideas coming to the forefront is is an interesting one because it's it's a very timely reminder for us that you know there is an exploration of ideas now there is a dearth of uh, of the present systems in terms of the way they've handled things and the way they want to kind of uh, govern the world if you like and so the time is ripe for us to kind of step into that mode. Um, and it's only by looking at things and examining things in detail that we will be able to do so. So although uh, I, I kind of fully echo your points about, you know, the distress and the trauma that we're all living under at this time and, you know, the deaths of loved ones and, and everything that's happening around us, but it also offers us a really good opportunity to to think and to reflect and then to almost change our behaviours and change our understanding of how and what we see as Muslims and what we see as Islam's role in the world as well. 
And on that note, Jazakallah Khair, uh, Brother Riaz Hassan, it's, it's been a pleasure to, to speak to you today. And uh, we must uh, speak again. And, and um, there are still some strands of that conversation that we need to explore further in the future, inshallah. Uh, but Jazakallah Khair for your, for your time today. Hey, Jazakallah Khair for you for having me. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.